Welcome to our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watched our game and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing. Better to do so. Listen, here's our show. Hello and welcome to Probing the Wormhole, a Stargate discussion podcast. I'm Rose, going to be your host today, and I am with Samantha, a super fan. Malika, who wasn't really a fan of this episode, and I don't know about the series. Glad to have you joining us again. Today, we're going to be talking about episode 12 of season one of SG-1, Fire and Water. So we start this episode in Hammond's office. The alarms ring and everyone jogs into the gate room and we see most of SG-1, Jack, Teal'c, and Sam come through the gate looking a little bit shell-shocked and wet. They asked him and asked about Daniel and they say, Daniel's dead, sir. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Did anyone believe that he was actually dead? Not believe, hope, <laughs> not believe. So Malika, you're still a Daniel hater at this point. I am. <laughs> I like the actor. I don't like his behavior and we'll get into it later <laughs> in the episode. <laughs> How many tantrums can a man have? Come on now. <laughs> You know, it's, it's been so long since I've seen this episode originally. I don't know if I actually thought he might have been dead when I saw this the first time. You never, never in a series do you kill off uh, one of the principal characters in the first season. So yeah, that's true. Maybe he wasn't dead. But, you know, the thing is, is that when they first came through the gate and they were wet and they were acting weird, I thought these could not possibly be the rest of the team members. These are alien people. And they were and they were acting really strangely. They were clutching each other too. Do you notice that? Yeah, it's and you know their behavior, their strange behavior kind of continues when they go into the infirmary. We see Janet Fraser doing her Janet Fraser thing, being awesome, taking charge of the situation. But you have Sam who's like shaking and crying, which isn't usually how she appears after um, a mission. You have Teal'c sort of being very belligerent about nothing, about getting his blood pressure taken. And then you have Jack, who seems very aloof. So they, they are acting very strangely. So we get eventually get to the briefing room. And that's where we have sort of this, you know, montage scene of the different members of SG-1 being debriefed. They all saw Daniel getting engulfed in fire. So then we get to Hammond and Fraser talking in the hallway. So I thought this scene was interesting. First of all, you know, I like that Janet stands up to him. She knows what's best for her patients and she doesn't let the general intimidate her. Yeah, I wonder how realistic this is because she outranks him or she should outrank him in medical matters. Like if she says they are not fit for a mission, he needs to say, okay, that's the decision. But he fought back. And I'm just wondering, it, does that happen in real life? What do you think? I, I do wonder about the tension between being both an officer and a doctor. Like when your obligations to follow orders from a superior officer conflict with your obligations to make a decision that's best for your patients. Yeah. What's the, the doctor's oath, the Hippocratic, Hippocratic oath, Hippocratic oath versus your oath to the air force. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly been interesting to have somebody who's in that position 
tell us how that works in real life. Instead of us just speculating. <laughs> just talking out of our asses. <laughs> so who's going down to the recruiting office and getting going into the military tomorrow? You know, there is an Air Force base about 10 miles from my house. Okay. I could just drive up there and they'd shoot me on site. But as I try to approach the base, I could just ask the guard at the front, be like, can you tell me some things about the Air Force? I'm sure we would not be the first people to call the military or just show up and be like, hey, so tell me, can you have a flag ceremony for a dead non-military yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> exactly. it's like you are the fifth person who's asked me that today yeah they're like you're watching stargate right season one <laughs> <laughs> they're like let me put you through to the pentagon <laughs> so also this scene between uh, Fraser and Hammond is an interesting insight of how sort of traditional military personnel deal with trauma and traumatized personnel right like she's saying I'm not worried about them physically. Physically, they're fine. I am very worried about their mental state. PTSD is a is a medical condition. And she is saying they have this medical condition. And Hammond, who represents, I think, more of an old school military leadership approach, is like, oh, no, they just need to get back into work. They're fine. They just need to, to move past this. Um, and I, it seemed to me like a generational divide and also like a cultural divide of like the sort of medical approach to handling it versus the like, you know, let's pretend it didn't happen. Societal approach. Right. I mean, just, just think about how many tours, um, people were having to do in Afghanistan. It was just, it was constant rotation back into the field and not taking into account the mental health and the, the strain that those tours took on those people. So that's a very Hammond's approach is on par with what the military believes about putting servicemen and women back into the field as soon as possible. Yeah. I, I wonder what Don Davis, the guy who played Hammond thought about it. Cause he was in the military. I think he was in the military during the Vietnam era. He yeah. probably had a, uh, something to say about that. And it's such a pervasive illness. Like PTSD, it really affects every aspect of your life. It completely affects your ability to function sort of, we always, we talk a lot about how like military culture and how this, if this is like accurate and how it's reflects on our society. And I think this example of how trauma is really brushed under the rug is, was kind of interesting. Um, so then we do get to the ceremony, the memorial service for Daniel. Some things that struck me about it, you have a flag ceremony for a civilian. You have them playing the taps thing on the bugle for a civilian. I don't know if that's allowed. And Teal'c is sort of treated like the grieving widow. <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting choice. His facial expressions when he, when he receives the flag are like, why are you giving this to me? <laughs> but like, why did they pick Teal'c? Was, is it because he's the only civilian member of SG-1? No, it's because he is Daniel's next of kin. But like, okay, so... <laughs> I, <laughs> This whole Daniel Teal relationship in season one is so baffling to me because they obviously have so much to work out, right? With Teal's role in making Sharia Gould and we don't see it, but there's all these like little clues that they have this really deep relationship. What's going on there? This whole, this whole scene was baffling to me. I mean, not just Tilk being the, the person who gets the American flag, for a non-military person, that's just scratching the surface. 
I mean, thinking about what you just said, Rose, there is no processing. And what we're left to believe is that Daniel has just accepted it. But then Daniel is constantly upset about Sheree, constantly. So, yeah, I don't get it. But, you know, honestly, I think Daniel would be okay with this unauthorized death flag being handed to Tilk. The, the way they were folding up that flag was very precise. And it reminded me of a, a military funeral that I've seen. And I'm wondering if they used real officers to, to fold this flag. Yeah, could be. So they do dial the Stargate to like put the wreath in. Where is it? Where are they sending it to? Is it just pop out and some random planet on the other side? And people and are like, what the hell is this? Yeah, and how did it like, like go slowly it like stuck in the middle of the gate and went slowly into the gate that was so weird they probably said it to abydos i mean that makes abydos's gate is buried for a year right oh. so wouldn't can it, like i'm assuming they send it to some uninhabited planet but still kind of weird i don't know because it's not like it goes into space into the ether like it just it goes to another planet and there's going to be a wreath laying next to the stargate and some people are going to be like what the hell is this when they find it well, I was actually, I was like, because of course I, I knew Daniel wasn't dead, but I was like, uh, the next scene, um, when he wakes up, I was like, where's the wreath? I just figured <laughs> he'd wake up and the wreath would be like on top of him. And he'd be like, wait, did they, did they have a funeral for me? What is this? I did want to say that the color guard during the funeral scene was actually real. That's why it looked, it looked professional. So then we find out Daniel's not dead. Yay. Or boo, depending on your feelings about Daniel. Mine was more of a boo. We just get a second of that. And then we cut to the wake at Jack's house. And so Jack is telling this story about Sharae sucking Daniel's face to some random lady. Who is that lady? Well, she would have had to have clearance. So she, yeah. but yeah, that was weird. And what about Tilk's hat? <laughs> <laughs> So this is the first time we really see them all in their civvy clothes, their non-military clothes. Jack, we've seen in the first episode with his oversized leather jacket. But now we see Sam and Teal'c. So yeah, we get a sense of Teal'c's off-base style. He has an affinity for the cowboy hat. Well, he needs something that will cover the gold emblem. Does he? Which just does doesn't he, really. No. It, <laughs> you can explain away that, that emblem. Well, but the thing is, is that once at the wake, all those people supposedly... Uh, have military clearance and are from the base so please Tilk take the hat off <laughs> not doing you any favors yeah get used to the hats <laughs> minor spoiler <laughs> I love Tilk's off-base style at least you know at least it's like absurd intentionally absurd as opposed to Jack being like can somebody get him a shirt that fits him like <laughs> seriously <laughs> and why is Carter I mean are we guessing Carter's like mid-30s she's younger i think she's younger. 20s oh okay so why is she why does she dress like me why does she have an old lady cardigan over a sheath dress they you know i find that they always make her look unnecessarily frumpy at least in the early seasons but it's like all like mom jeans and mm -hmm. cardigans and i'm like she can do you know she's she's way hot you can yeah. you can dress her up so then at the wake sam asked for a beer Jack pours the beer, the bubbles come up and he freaks out and runs out. What kind of set alcohol setup did O'Neill have here? He had the bottles inverted 
I've seen it in bars. Yeah. I was a little surprised that he had this, this bar like setup in his house. Is O'Neill an alcoholic? I mean, is is he, I think he is an alcoholic. He drinks a lot of beer. Yeah. He is. Uh, he indulges a lot. So I'm sure this is just his private staff. He did not <laughs> need to go to the grocery store for this. Yeah. I mean, that issue never shows, I mean, we never encounter this issue, but alcohol is around O'Neill in, in various forms quite often. Yeah, that's true. Somebody should, should intervene perhaps. <laughs> yeah. So we go back to the alien lair and we see Nem for the first time. What were your impressions of this this alien? <laughs> Sam does not is not impressed. Awful. I Why this this outfit? What the, what is this outfit that he's wearing? He's like aquatic. Is, is his coat <laughs> supposed to be gills? I mean, is that what it is? No, this is what happens when you don't properly recycle the plastic thing <laughs> off your cans. Nem is wearing them over his kick ass leggings <laughs> it's awesome Wait, but was this his body or is that his outfit that's well, his outfit i think it's his outfit because at one point yeah. he removes the the gill jacket yeah i do need <laughs> to put a warning here i will not be calling him nem i will be calling him what he is the freddy krueger of the sea <laughs> his face is so freddy krueger that was it was awesome i've never seen freddy krueger I do not do horror. He is Freddy Krueger of the Sea. <laughs> okay. Well, Freddy Krueger of the Sea makes his appearance, apparently an amphibious species that lives like thousands and thousands of years. Daniel, you know, tries to make friends with him in his usual way. So he shows Daniel a script and Daniel immediately recognize, not only recognizes it as Babylonian cuneiform, but can read it. <laughs> I mean, a bit much. Do you know any, have you heard of any human being on earth that could read Babylonian cuneiform, like just on the fly, that isn't a Babylonian cuneiform scholar? Is that a thing? I didn't even know this language was a thing, so. Ah, I thought it was alien. Like, it doesn't look like hieroglyphics. It doesn't look like any writing that I've ever seen before. I absolutely thought it was an alien language. I mean, cuneiform is a real thing, but it's like an ancient, ancient written language. I don't, I don't think you could just read it. Well, especially not Daniel, because he doesn't have his glasses. And he doesn't study Babylonian cuneiform. He studies ancient Egypt, right? Like, I just don't, like, this idea that Daniel knows everything about every human civilization for, throughout history and can not only read it, but understand it and speak the language is so preposterous. So and he does read it, and it says, reveal fate, Omaroka. Nem screams, and Daniel jumps back. So... I don't find Michael Shanks, I don't find him hot, but I think this is the most objectively hot he has been because <laughs> he's, yeah. he's looking pretty hot. You know, he doesn't have his glasses. His eyes are very blue, very nice blue eyes, <laughs> slicked back hair. It looks nice. I will say he does look good. He does look good for a dead guy. I, I you know, I, I agree. I, and Michael Shanks was never my like particular type. So I never will like lust it after him, but um, he's objectively good looking, I think. He's just, you know, not old enough or bald enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) So back at the wake, O'Neill's obviously upset hitting hockey pucks in his uh, driveway and sort of goes ballistic on Hammond's car. Hammond takes that very well. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> I think I might've lost my shit a little bit more if, some, if somebody that worked for me was breaking my car windows. Yeah. Am I being unnecessarily petty to wonder why a general has such a dumpy car? <laughs> well, what kind of car was it? It's like a shitty sedan, right? Like an old, Ham- old Hammond's movie. not a pretentious guy. Hammond's a pretty down to earth guy. If it works, he's going to keep it. Even if he, he probably has a good amount of money. How much did generals get paid? A lot. More than we do. When Hammond told O'Neill that he was going to make him go over to Daniel's apartment and take out all the, the classified items, I was like, is this kind of payback? Because O'Neill is constantly shattering Daniel's dreams, crushing his spirit. <laughs> Making so, him destroy his only hope to save his wife. Exactly. So Hammond's like, payback's a bitch. <laughs> and so I had a question though. So Jack is obviously acting kind of volatilely. They're all, all we talked about all of SG-1 was sort of acting not like themselves. Is, is his behavior the result of alien influence or is this how he processes grief? I had the same question. I think this is how he processes grief. So just not healthily. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Well, could it be a mixture of the two? Because part of grief is, I mean, towards the end of grief, once you've gone through all the steps is acceptance, right? And how can you ever really accept anything if you have a feeling that the person's gone, but they're not dead? I would think that would amp up your bad behavior and grief. So they're kind of stuck in a, in this process and not able to move forward. Right. That's what I was thinking. And I think that's why Hammond sent them to the apartment to help them, you know, process the grief together. So back in the lair, we have more interaction between Nam and Daniel, or I'm sorry, Freddy Krueger of the sea and Daniel. Nam is asking Daniel about his mate, Amaroka, which I immediately thought of, um, Trump's advisor, Omarosa. That's her, that's her name, right? Omarosa. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like, I couldn't get that out of my head that his wife is this, <laughs> this lady. His mate, right? He said his, his mate. His mate. Yeah. Right. And then they mentioned, um, I don't know how to say this, Hammurabi's code. Hammurabi? No, thank you. Okay. <laughs> but I think it's the first legal code in existence or something. Yeah, I think so too. So is is the idea that the cuneiform was this alien, is this alien race's language and they gave it to humans or they learned it from the humans? And it wasn't clear what the connection was between these aliens and that culture. Right. If he's going to go study up on one of our languages, he should probably study up on English. (laughs) Which he was able to learn very quickly. Oh yeah. (laughs) I thought you would comment on that. It was a little jarring. Um, Having uh, Freddie's face with those little chick lady teeth. And then all of a sudden English comes out as well. <laughs> I thought of you, Rose. <laughs> why, would you, why would you think of Because of my issue with language, not because I look like that guy. No, Santa, uh, no, Rose is not. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so the thanks. alien gives Daniel sustenance in his, in that very, very uncomfortable bed to sleep on. Yeah, what was that? <laughs> it was a like shelf. a plastic shelf. <laughs> No, it was it was a morgue bed. (laughs) Like he must have done some research to figure out how to keep a a human. You're watching like Law and Order, which has all these dead bodies. I wonder. (laughs) I've been in a morgue. 
and everybody was laying down on a gurney. I mean, dead not, people, you mean by yeah. everybody? You weren't not running willfully. around? <laughs> not willfully. So we go to Daniel's apartment. It's full of like anthropology stuff and books and a mess and fish, and so, tank. fish, and fish tank. Who takes care of that fish when they're on multi-day missions? It must really smell at this point. <laughs> to me, neither, none of these people should be having pets. Like they they go on missions for like days and days at a time and sometimes weeks. And sometimes you get stuck at the base. And I don't know. I feel like the chances of you killing your pet are pretty high. So you shouldn't have one. But he does have a fish. <laughs> Maybe the neighbors take care of it. I don't know. But inside, Sam finds his expedition journals. It seems strange to me that he's allowed to keep classified material off base. That seems like a security breach. I think she, the excerpt that she reads, I think was in the movie. And, and I always, I, I'm never sure if she's saying laid or paid. Paid. I, she said paid. paid. Okay. For a while, I thought it was, I'm never going to get laid. <laughs> but he's married. I didn't no, know, but this is in the movie because he wrote it before, in, the, in okay. the movie before he met Share. Then he got laid, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's paid. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, Daniel will get laid if he keeps his glasses off, his hair slicked back, keeps <laughs> constantly wet. <laughs> I wish they SGN got laid more often. I mean, they do get laid at various points. We'll see in the future, but you know, for they're all good looking people. They should be all getting laid plenty. Anyway. And then they all uh, again, Sam's looking in this fish tank with a very not dead fish. The bubbles trigger that image of Daniel in the fire and they all realize they've been all having that same image and that something is just not right. And then we go back to the alien lair again and Daniel gets some more information. Nem tells him that he was gave his friends the memory of him dying so that they won't come back and look for him. Is this where we see Nem coming out of the water? I oh, think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is the first time where we see that that transition from the water to the I guess oxygen atmosphere i thought it was pretty a nice um a nice what's it called effect yeah i kind of like the the amphibious alien it, it's like something different sure <laughs> different <laughs> you know we'll talk about our feelings about this episode later it must be really moist in there because daniel's still looking pretty slipped back yeah yeah it's got to be very humid i would think so Nem asks him for information about his wife. Daniel's like, dude, this shit happened 4,000 years ago. I don't know. And Nem is under the impression that the humans of Earth served the Gould because Teal'c was with them and Teal'c had a Gould in him and humans served Goulds. And his wife went there or his mate went there to stop it and apparently was not successful. So was Nem just sort of like hanging out here for 4,000 years waiting for someone to come by? I don't know. It's not like he entrapped them, right? Because they, no, they went there. Yeah. Yeah. We, and, and we just learned that he roars at them and then they all fall down. So he, I think he has the power to grab people and just start interrogating them. But like 4,000 years is a long time to be just like sitting in your lair, wondering what happened to your mate. Right. And you're like, Oh, look, people, let me like capture them and they'll tell me. Yeah, like maybe he should go out and try to find her. That could that's an right. option. And he did he? Stargate. And well, I mean, because he couldn't get to Earth because the Stargate was buried up until recently. But has he been looking for her? And if so, yeah, like this, none of that was clear. So we go back to the infirmary. 
Janet is concerned because they are all acting kind of strange and they have low levels of serotonin and also have a weird black dot on their brain scans. That's not ever a good sign. And the alarm rings, they all run to the gate room thinking it's going to be Daniel. It turns out to just be some random SG team. There's a lot of this episode. There's a lot of back and forth between the lair, which is really that lair scene is like Daniel and Nem like arguing about what he doesn't know and what he should know like a lot. <laughs> there's about four or five scenes that are kind of the same thing. Each time we get a tiny bit more information about Omaroka and, and all that. And you have SG-1 sort of slowly losing their marbles on Earth. Back in the lair, uh, that's when we first learned about Bellis. Daniel recognizes the name, of course, because Daniel knows everything about every human culture that ever lived and is able to say, oh, Bellis, he was a conqueror, all that. Daniel suggests that he comes back to Earth and he can research it for him. What do you think would happen if this dude walks through the gate? Earth. Well, he's amphibious. So does he need to go back into the water at some point? How long can he just breathe oxygen or be without water? Does he like does his skin need to be kept wet like frogs? No. <laughs> does he just dry out, become all desiccated if he stays out of the water? I don't know. I mean he can breathe. He seems like he can breathe oxygen for fairly long periods, but they might have to have like a bathtub nearby. But I think he'd be immediately like arrested and studied, right? Like, and Daniel knows that. So to like suggesting that he come back with him doesn't seem like a great idea unless he's just trying to entrap him. So he tells the story of how Omaroka went to earth to fight the gold in the time of Babylonia. She's kind of like a union organizer. She (laughs) organizes the people against Belus, who turns out is a Gauld and for for that she is killed right so she was not successful daniel says oh no she might have been successful because there was an uprising in ancient egypt and maybe she helped plant the seed but i thought that was before that was five thousand years ago yeah i think daniel's just tap dancing here <laughs> okay because <laughs> he should know that, that five thousand yeah. years is before four thousand years <laughs> well also at this p- point We already know that he's implanted a memory into uh, the rest of the team. I was thinking, why can't he just get scan Daniel's memory and get this information? Why is he yelling at him? What fate Omaroka instead of just scanning him a couple scenes later, that's exactly what happened. And I was like, (laughs) because it might kill him. You know, I, I don't know if Freddie is as much as he wants the fate of his mate, why do you care that this one, you might kill this one dude? I don't know. Well, one, I think he's afraid of killing him because he's his only hope. And if he kills him, that's it. But the other is, I mean, Nim is supposed to be presented as this good guy. Like he, like he's initially the bad guy because he kidnaps Daniel, but then we find the reasons behind it. And he's ultimately, we're supposed to be sympathetic. And I think if he just becomes a cold-blooded murderer, that becomes less clear. So Malika, why don't you tell us about Bellis? Okay. So he's the God of war. He founded Babylon and he was an ancient King. He also built the ziggurat too. Yeah. Was he a bad guy or we don't know? Well, he killed, um, what fate (laughs) on Maroka. (laughs) He killed on Maroka. So we know he's a bad dude. He's a union buster back to the briefing room okay so then we have dr mckenzie playing this weird white noise i'm not sure what the point of that like ocean sounds was 
Although it did seem to work on Teal'c. <laughs> and I love his face. That was just perfect. And why are they using a tape recorder from the 40s? <laughs> like this is the 90s. They had, what, did they, did they have CDs at this point? Yeah, it, in yeah. 97, yeah, they definitely had CDs. <laughs> or like cassettes, audio cassettes. <laughs> so what do we think of Dr. McKenzie? <laughs> I feel like I, I know more about him later, so I that might color him, but he, he strikes me as like the classic evil doctor, evil psychiatrist. I appreciate him trying to get to the root of the problem, but when he suggested hypnosis, I was like, okay, you're <laughs> correct. <laughs> Is hypnosis a legitimate psychiatric technique? Because I know people that have done it. Oh, I'm sure. You know, maybe you can stop smoking cigarettes or something. I, but you can't get hidden memories. I, you know, remember that there was a time, I think in the 2000s, when there were, there were issues of implanting false memories. Maybe Nim was part of that. That whole craze, that whole, like, I was secretly molested and didn't know it until I was, like, 45. That was a big thing in the 90s. Well, I, it was on TV a lot. Like, there were all these storylines. There's a Melrose Place storyline about that. The 90s had a lot of problems. I think it all stemmed from, like, the satanic panic. But I, I honestly, I don't think hypnosis works. It can be used against you if you use recovered memory in a trial or something. That's not good science. That doesn't make it in front of a jury. And when you go to Vegas and they do those shows, those are plants. I don't know. It just, it seems kind of quackery. I wonder why I wouldn't work on Teal because he says hypnosis will not work on me. And I wonder why. Because he's a Jaffa. His answer to everything is I'm a Jaffa. Okay. <laughs> Maybe if you have a belly snake. I mean, the white noise works on him. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So back in the lair, this is when Daniel asks him, he's like, oh, if you, you know, to do what Malika suggested that he do, if you can implant memories, why don't you just search my mind? And Nam says, no, because it's going to kill you and I'm not going to do it. And Daniel seems very insistent that he should do this. Why is Daniel being so insistent that he should do something that might kill him? Because he's suicidal. Is he, is that it? Is that the answer? Cause that was my thought too. I mean, remember he wanted to stay in the castle in. Torment of Tantalus. Yes. And that was going to kill him. There was no question that that was suicide. He's, he's actively suicidal. I really think that he needs some medication. He needs an evaluation. He needs a social worker. I mean, he he's got some he's got some issues and we need to address these. They all really do have some. Jack as well. Jack's also. I mean, so you have half of this team that's sort of pretty actively suicidal. Also, I mean, we didn't talk about this, but leading up, almost every underwater scene was Daniel having a tantrum. In one of the scenes, he had two tantrums. It, he is just like the dude is on the edge. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like mental health should be a higher priority in terms of their care. She's okay. trying. Yeah. Yeah, she is trying. She is yeah. doing a good job. So now we get back to the briefing room. Everyone says they are very sure both that Daniel's alive and that he's dead. How can this both be true? Mackenzie suggests hypnosis. And then Sam 
Well, then they suggest going back to the planet and there's that instinctive response. No, we can't. And Mackenzie's like, well, that sounds like a conditioned response. And then Sam volunteers for the hypnosis because she what? She was, she did it once as a psych minor or something. Yeah. Haven't we all? <laughs> so they do this hypnosis, this flashing light thing. Is that really a part of hypnosis? Cause that was weird. I'm telling you, it's not <laughs> real practice. Oh God, that would give me a migraine. Yeah, it seems like, does it have to? Because it's extremely distracting also to watch this like light flicker on and off in her face. I'm gonna take my time with this scene because it does, this is the hug scene. Okay. <laughs> I knew this. I was gonna, I wrote in my notes, Shipper's Corner. Well, so I'm, first let me say, I'm very glad O'Neill was in that room for multiple reasons. One of them is that, Mackenzie looks so slimy in this one scene. Yeah. Dr. Mackenzie is the reason why you always have a nurse. In he's the doctor that's going to like sexually assault you. Yeah. Put you <laughs> under and then you wake up and your panties are on backwards. Right. <laughs> that's Dr. Mackenzie. So of course, O'Neill's like, I'm going to stand here because we don't have a nurse. So during this hypnosis, Sam... She gets, you know, sort of that instinctual, she gets upset when she has those visions of Daniel getting burned and the doctor sort of prompts her to go deeper. And then we get the real story, which is that they were on this planet looking at a bunch of stuff. An alien comes out of the water, en engages with them, writes cuneiform on the floor, which on the sand, which Daniel immediately recognizes and responds in. And I guess the alien from that interaction realizes Daniel's his best bet to get information, knocks everybody else out. They, we see them strapped to these devices where I guess the memory procedure happens and then they end up wet and shivering back at the SGC. Then she screams, we left him behind. And O'Neill jumps up and gives her a very long hug. Shivers corner, the hug. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the hug. Not just I, a hug. There was like a full neck slap hair caressing. Yes, I love that part. <laughs> One, it's, it seems like an instinctual reaction to like comfort and protect somebody he cares about. As much as I would like to read into, this is like obviously his, his intense love for Carter. It also could be because they're friends. He probably deeply cares about all members of this team and seeing them distressed like this would trigger that kind of, I need to protect and comfort reaction. That's one. So in one level, it seems really sweet and like genuine. And it seemed like he didn't really think about it. He just jumped up and did it, right? But it also seems very unprofessional, you know, considering he's a commanding officer, they're in a facility, not alone. And I would imagine that there's all kinds of rumors that they're fucking among the SGC, right? Even if they, there was nothing between them, you know, dudes are gross and they're going to assume that they're fucking. And so wouldn't this sort of like, so I would think that, both Sam and Jack, but especially Sam would go out of her way, especially after that kiss and broke a divide would go out of her way to like have all appearances be that there's nothing between them. It, it not only is it a hug, but he grabs her first. Mm -hmm. Like he pulls her to him. Yes. It's yeah. very, it's a very aggressive hug. Like she's pretty passive in this hug. And I, I wish that the camera had panned over to her face so we could see what she, what her, if she's enjoying it. If she's like, don't hug me. Don't hug me. They're going to talk about this. Um, she yeah. doesn't pull away from him. She does not. I don't, she might've been just so surprised that like, damn, he's hugging me now. If he hadn't reached for the back of her neck, I think this would just be a comforting hug 
between uh, colleagues. But the fact that he comforts her, like it's an additional level of comfort that just goes beyond comradeship when he hugs the back of her neck or you know, places a hand on the back of her neck. That's what does it for me. Do you think this is where it starts? You know, I think as we will see in a few episodes, I like to, I, I consider solitudes like chapter one of the Shipper's Bible. We're not there yet. There seems like a, a deep like concern for each other. And I wonder if that like touching the back of the neck thing, was that written into the script or was that RDA's like, I'm going to take this to the next level? I think it's RDA's. Because <laughs> it could be, it could be read in multiple ways. I don't know. I, I, I mean, envision what the script would look like. They hug, he grabs the back of her neck. No, yeah, I don't know. No, it's probably just like O'Neill hugs Carter. Yeah. So let's put aside our shipper inclinations for a moment. Is it appropriate for a, a boss to hug a subordinate or an employee in this manner in the, in a professional setting? I don't think so. No, it's not. But if Carter were a man, there wouldn't be any, any concern. So it's unfortunate that he can't show this level of affection to a woman because she is a woman. But I, I just can't get past that. Like, I think Sam would be extremely concerned about maintaining appearances that there's nothing untoward happening between them. And I think she'd be upset if this happened. And then there's a whole bunch of rumors that she's fucking her boss. Yeah, I, I could also see a side of Sam that would just keep her head down, just ignore what everyone else says. And it, I think she would only become concerned if it impacted her career. And do you think Hammond is made aware of this? Mackenzie obviously saw this hug. Do you think Mackenzie's like, hey, there was a hug? No, I think Mackenzie's like, yeah, get it on. Let's go. <laughs> it was so gross. <laughs> Malik is not listening to us. Well, and Shipper's Corner is not for me, Annie. No, but we need an outside ship, an outside. Do what is your interpretation of this hug as a non-shipper? I think that if they had panned around to Sam's face, she wouldn't even have realized that she was being hugged. I think she was so traumatized by having this memory come back, which I don't think would happen because I don't believe in hypnosis, but she seemed very traumatized. She would still be in shock. Her eyes would have been wide. She would, she's not hugging him back. I think this exposes O'Neill's love for her but not necessarily her love for him because I don't think she was able, she was in the, in the headspace to uh, accept and reciproc- reciprocate at this point. And plus, can you see O'Neill hugging and caressing the neck of Tilk if he had been hypnotized and had a traumatic memory? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it hasn't happened yet. It could happen in a couple seasons. I just don't see it. I see him doing that with Daniel though, like, which is maybe the basis for all the slash fiction that's out there between Daniel and Jack. And like, yeah, I could, they, they have some intense hugs. I think O'Neill's a hugger. He's just, that's his personality. I'm there for that. Okay. So we go back to Nem's lair and we see Daniel strapped into that device. And, you know, for as reluctant as he seems to like perform this, this procedure on Daniel, he really does crank that shit up pretty fast, right? Like, he's like, no, no, you're gonna die. I'm not gonna do it. Daniel's like, no, do it. He struts him in. And then as soon as Daniel like 
stumbles, he like cranks it up and then cranks it up again and <laughs> cranks it up again. But not only that, but Underwater Freddy spends a lot of time making sure that Daniel gives informed consent to what <laughs> is going to happen. It was solid. He's not getting sued if Daniel does. <laughs> Although, I mean, yes, he did go get a lot of informed consent. However, when you are holding someone prisoner and threatening to kill them, I'm not sure how much your consent in that circumstance really counts. <laughs> That's true. But good effort. Good effort on Freddie's part. Mm-hmm. So he starts reciting this passage and um, describes how Bellis killed Omaroka, which prompts Nem to turn off the device and scream because he's so sad. <laughs> I felt bad for him. You didn't feel bad for him? Not really. No. <laughs> Just when he, when he said, he murdered my love. <laughs> and then that scream he gives at the end. It, it was just a little too comical for me to feel any, any, any pain for him. So I did notice that we have the same theme. There was this theme, like they mentioned this emancipation when, what's his name? That kid who kidnaps Carter and sells her into, into slavery because he's doing it for a woman he loves. We're like, oh, that's so sweet. And I feel like this is the same thing. Like underwater Freddy kidnaps Daniel you know, performs a really dangerous and potentially fatal um, procedure on him so he can get information about his mate. And because he's doing it for love, it's like, oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, and, and Daniel's in the same boat because he's trying to find his love, but I don't see Daniel kidnapping someone and torturing them for information. He did kill all those baby ghouls though. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. Honestly. <laughs> I went on Gate World again. And there's a lot of people who sympathized with Nem. So they, they fell for that. No. I for it. You like you, <laughs> Freddie. Well, cause he was like torturing Daniel and you don't like Daniel. I don't like Daniel, but the fact that Omaroka, but she was actually fighting the Gauld. Her whole purpose of going to Babylon was to be a rabble rouser and get all the people to fight against Bellis. So she's a positive character and I can see why he would really miss her. She sounds like a dynamic underwater lady. Well, I sympathize. And yet I think the way he went about dealing with this is pretty shitty. Like you can be both a sympathetic person and do shitty things. Yeah. As we know, yeah. we have many clients that do things like that. Not things like this particularly <laughs> do shitty things. Uh, I think <laughs> I'm sure some of us have had clients that have tortured. Yeah, but yeah. not to find their like 5,000 year old amphibious alien mate. That'd be quite a defense. <laughs> totally an awesome defense. So a little spoiler, we never see these people again. They clearly are very old, are accustomed to like interplanetary travel, are enemies of the Gould. So it's interesting that we never really see them again. I never really find out more about them, but like was Omaroka just sort of hanging out in ancient Babylon looking like this guy? Because I think that would be weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine the ancient Babylonians being like, there's a walking fish who wants us to raise up against our God. Yeah. But I, I'm disappointed to hear that Underwater Freddy doesn't come back. I know. It's, it's one of those weird one-offs. 
Well, they did say, Daniel says something about how she was, she came from a heavenly egg. I don't know what that means. Is that part of the transport? Like it's a spaceship? Spaceship or this is how they, she hatches? I don't know. It was weird. Maybe she's a mermaid. Like maybe she's the original mermaid. Yeah. Who knows? That occurred in Babylon, right? (laughs) I mean, why not? (laughs) So then we get back to the surface. We do see Sam, Teal'c, and Jack running across the sand looking for Daniel. We also, Daniel realizes he could just swim out of there, which I guess he didn't realize before. And then we have Nem emerging and then Daniel emerging from the water. He screams at everyone not to shoot. So Daniel has has joined side Nem. Like even though this guy, he sort of kidnapped, imprisoned and tortured him. He's okay with it because he's a very forgiving guy and everyone makes friends, but that's really it. And then we all go home. And then we have that cute little banter between Jack and Daniel about sushi. Do you think this is O'Neill's way of saying, I really missed you? Yes, I think so. Or, and it's also RDA's way of saying this episode of shit. Um, I do want to talk about, as you know, my disdain for Daniel, the fact that Freddie says, like, as a, his parting thought, like a hopeful statement about Daniel finding Sheree. And I was like, every single planet Daniel goes to, he needs validation for his obsession with getting his wife back. I heard Conan O'Brien and Tignataro call it a need hole. And <laughs> it is constant like, tell me that I'll find Sheree. Tell me that I'm on the right path. It's this need hole. Hate it. Hate it. And what do we think happens to poor Nem with no mate and no hope of finding his mate? Does he get a new mate? where it didn't seem like there was much of anything anyone else on that planet I think that he wanted to either know where she was so he he could go get her or he wanted to know that she was dead so he could have some closure so I'll give Daniel half a point reluctantly for giving closure to Nem I did go down a rabbit hole looking for those leggings however the ones that Nem was wearing yes they're like a kind of a blue green camo they were pretty they were fire did you find them no (laughs) no so let's talk about how many chevrons we give this episode malika let's start with you i enjoy seeing Daniel tortured. So I give this one four chevrons. I also, I really liked how Nem really reminded me of Freddy Krueger. That was just like icing on the cake of, uh, and then Freddy Krueger torturing Daniel. So I was happy, but it did feel kind of like a throwaway filler episode, especially if you're telling me that we're never going to see Nem again or this world. So maybe it brought everybody a little bit closer, but I, I think that on a rewatch, I think that most people would just skip this because it doesn't really further the story much. So four chevrons for me. So Sam, how many chevrons would you give this? I would give this two chevrons. I, I think Malika 
was right about the many tantrums that Daniel throws in this episode. The only thing I can really remember about this episode is the hug, which is nice, but also Daniel just yelling at this fish monster. I'm going to give it four. I don't love it, but I, it's, it's definitely one I always watch and rewatch. It's, I find it pretty benign. I love the hug. I like that this is really the first time that the team, one of the team members gets separated and they think he's dead and they really like fight for him. And we see that team dynamic come up again. And I love that team development. If, if we saw this episode on TV today, is there anything about it that would be different? I think if you're going to hint that a character is dead or you're going to kill off the character, that character will remain dead. I think uh, now in 2022, people are used to the main characters dying and then actually not dying. And a lot of reviewers don't like that. Yes, Stargate, (laughs) the number of times Stargate kills off characters and then brings them back. (laughs) That would never fly. Thank you for joining us on this week's Probing the Wormhole. Next week, we will be discussing episode 13, Hathor, fan favorite. Have a good week. Bye. Freddy Krueger of the sea. Come to Freddy. Please like us. Oh, and follow us on Instagram at Probing the Wormhole or Twitter at Probing the Wormhole or Facebook at Probing the Wormhole. You can also get in touch with us at our website, probingthewormhole.com.